Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October 29th, 2016, and we're here with the one and only Monty Montgomery who is causing trouble all over the place, and that's good, especially in the courtroom. <laughs> and so we're going to start off tonight about uh, a couple of documents that I received. Hey, Monty, so um, those documents you sent me, are those for posting? For um, review? Once? Sure. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, the, I never send you anything that I have not used myself. Okay. Sometimes I'll put it in generic format, but um, I don't necessarily recommend that people who are not prepared to deal with the fallout use them. But if nothing else, I, I would hope that it would stimulate their uh, spirit of adventure. Um, it'd be very they'd be hard pressed to keep up with my. Spirit of Adventure, but um, what was that? Uh, hey, Don, can you hit star six on your phone? We're getting some feedback from you. Okay. Will do. <clears throat> okay. Uh, the one uh, kind of kicked this thing off in the right tone or tenor. It's entitled Special Supplemental Interrogatories. And interrogatories, as you know, are directed to attorneys. It's how they establish the facts that they can formulate an argument on. And I did this one generically, um, like I did in my handbooks. Um, this was to Peter Pan Blowhard, attorney at law. <laughs> Uh, you will please take notice that my intent, based on newly discovered but as yet incomplete information regarding the true nature of, character of, and legal relations between, as well as the actual status and standing or lack thereof, of the respective parties or alleged parties to the above referenced case, is to help ensure that the above entitled court does not inadvertently overreach its lawful jurisdiction or proceed in otherwise avoidable errors. As an officer of the court, at least in theory, you should know that how you comport yourself reflects directly on the dignity of the court. In the event you may have deceived the court regarding your actual competency to act in such capacity, you will please take further notice of the following. Your reckless assertions of frivolous, your apparent inability to distinguish between truth and falsehood, and your complete disregard for proven facts, many of which are public record, insults my intelligence, my education, 
and my sense of honor to such an extent that were we face to face, I would probably challenge you to a duel with the intention of cleaning up the gene pool of mankind. Oh my God. However, being a civilized man, I will make allowances for your manifest deficiencies of character and mental challenges by establishing a baseline of modes of communication with you to achieve some degree of understanding between us in the hope that progress in the direction of truth might be marginally advanced to the benefit of those who must suffer your pitiful existence. To that object, I request that you answer the following special supplemental interrogatories as honestly as your disabilities allow and return this document to me as soon as possible. Um, I'll just kind of skip through. There's a, there's a number of them. Um, Come on, read them all. Well, okay. Are you afflicted with or suffer autism? Are you afflicted with or suffer Down syndrome? Are you afflicted with or suffer ADHD? Is your foolish diarrhea of the mouth a congenital abnormality? Is your preferred companion a teddy bear? (laughs) Do you still wet the bed? What do you do with what is on your fingers when you pick your nose? Do you dress yourself or does someone else do it for you? Do you sleep in a bed at night or in a a casket during the day? Do you routinely slough your epidermis? Is your spine vertebral or cartilaginous? I'll stop right there for a moment. So just just in those few, I've called him um, (laughs) a vampire. I've called him a snake. I've called him a shark. Oh, and now I'm getting down to what what else I'm calling him indirectly. Have you ever chased an ambulance or a fire engine? Have you ever bitten a mail carrier? (laughs) Did you you arrive by natural birth or in a laboratory? Does your being born with with your head stuck up your arse severely impair blood flow to your brain? What is your preferred drug for keeping you aware of your surroundings? Can you read and write, or does someone else do that for you? And one of the reasons I stuck that in there is I have dealt with attorneys in the past that you'd think they hadn't even gone to grade school by the way they wrote. Okay, do you sign your own name, or does someone else do it for you? Did you graduate from high school with a diploma, or did you obtain a GED? Is the English language foreign to you? Is your vocabulary greater or lesser than 200 words? Does your vocabulary include the word vocabulary? (laughs) Did anyone ever teach you how to use a dictionary? Do you know the meaning and etymology of the word attorney? Do you know the meaning and etymology of the word court? Was your admission to the bar on the basis of donative, uh, donative indulgence or an act of outright charity? Do you know the meaning of the word psychopath? Do you know the meaning of the word sociopath? When did you first decide to be a social parasite? When was the last time you recall having any meaningful contact with the real world? 
displacing people of their property give you a sense of wholesome achievement? Does embezzling public funds under patently false pretenses excite you? Is your degenerate behavior an acquired skill or is it genetically inherited? My advice to you is best expressed in the words of a notable American author. You really should be more careful about venturing unsolicited opinions because you run the very great risk of discovering their exact value to your listener. All right. <laughs> so what what is the purpose of this again? The purpose of this is uh, to... <laughs> Well, it has many purposes, actually. Uh, my purpose is to irritate the attorney enough that he's going to make mistakes. <laughs> I'm going to piss him off so bad he's going to lose lose his train of thought. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I've never had this happen, but they might try and come back. Most attorneys have pretty thick hides, uh, and they're used to this kind of thing. Um, uh, in fact, they, they're the first to really appreciate a good attorney joke. But um, occasionally, it's possible when you can embarrass an attorney in, in court where the judge starts laughing. Especially when you come in looking like a hayseed that doesn't that just fell off the turnip wagon, and you embarrass an attorney, um, that entertains a judge. <laughs> but yeah, which I've done all of those things at one point or another. Um, another one that I sent you is called special supplemental rules. And what I'm doing is I'm imposing rules on the court in addition to their own. Um, oh. and um, that one isn't quite as tongue-in-cheek. That one's down, de down deadly and serious. Uh, if you're challenged on it, then you come right back and say, are you challenging my authority? Where's the law that says I cannot, that, that prohibits me from adding special supplemental rules to govern this action under? Where's the law that, that does that? Where's the enabling authority that empowers the courts to stop me from doing that? Oh, wow. So I introduced my own set of rules on top of theirs. And I, I'm not going to go through those. It's fairly... Yeah, fairly right. Easy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but it's available. You have it now. Anyway, having kicked off everything with that little piece of jocular uh, entertainment... Um, I, I don't like just uh, standing and shooting out or running at the mouth here. So does anybody have any questions on a particular subject? If you have any questions, like you, Don, hit star 8 on your phone. By the way, uh, Monty, hit star 8 real quick so I can I don't accidentally mute you out. All right. 
So if anybody wants to talk or have any questions or anything, hit star eight, please. On your phone, that is, star eight. Okay. Don, you're first. Okay. Well, just for kicks here, uh, uh, what's been your experience in fighting the IRS? Have you had any uh, anything on, on that? Any victories um, or experiences? Or yeah, uh, they're positive, not as, negatives? Yeah, they're not as, uh, probably not as entertaining or as exciting as some of the experiences that people have had. Because when people come to me, they just say, I want them to go away. So that's all we do. Right. We just make them go away. Um, mm-hmm. and, I don't, and I don't go in there and challenge the validity of the IRS, and I don't go in and do this and that sort of thing. I keep it strictly within the commercial law, which is what they operate under. Um, this technically comes under UCC 3-505, which I think is now 501, where if somebody sends you a, if somebody sends you a bill, you have the the right to query that bill mm-hmm. to ask right. to ask for particulars. So. Um, what I've done uh, with a couple of people successfully, um, I'll, I'll use one in particular out of Missouri. Um, he received a notice uh, from the IRS in the all caps name. I said, well, the first thing you want to do is don't open the envelope because that is not addressed to you and it's against the law for you to open somebody else's mail. So don't open it. What you do is you write up a cover letter and you put your cover letter and that in a larger envelope and send it back to them. And on your cover letter, what you say is that, uh, first of all, if you're trying to reach me, the man, here's how you do it. And he had his name and title case and the proper address and all that. And then he put in there, addition, he said, in addition, it's, it has come to my attention. He doesn't say how. It has come to my attention that you're claiming that I owe uh, money to the uh, government of the United States of America. Um, And if that's true, and I cover this in my handbook to some degree, if that's true, uh, please send me a certified true bill, uh, including an itemized statement of goods and services received by my request from the United States of America, and I will happily pay it without hesitation in full. That's a valid offer, and if it's refused, the obligation is discharged. Um, so he didn't hear from him for a while, and then he got another one from a different location. They don't dare do this twice in the same location. <laughs> Otherwise, it's harassment. Um <clears throat> So, uh, oh, and it also included what their authority was to be collecting for the United States of America, which is part of the UCC as well. So, and that was just a simple, ordinary cover letter. Nothing fancy. Um, Sometime later, he received another similar envelope from uh, a different location for the IRS. And I told him, I said, handle it exactly the same way. And they did that, I think, for four or five times from all each time from a different location. One was Ogden, another one was um um 
Omaha. Um, I don't know, remember where they all came out of, but anyway, he just kept repeating that, and that was like, I don't know, six or eight years ago. Finally, they just stopped sending him letters, and they didn't bug him after that. In other words, they can't come after for uh, willful failure to file because he's offered to pay them if they will certify their bill. They won't do that. They can't do that. And uh, so, uh, to me, that's a success, that we achieved what they wanted. They wanted to be left alone. Did you question, Don? Yeah. Don? Hello? Yeah, does that answer your question? Pretty much. Yeah. You got any more? Uh, let's see here. I might hear... Um, uh, how does this sound that you uh, talk to somebody at the IRS saying, uh, say that uh, this is my offer to... Uh, what if I offer to pay the IRS upon receipt under the uh, Administrative Procedures Act and the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and the Reform and Restructuring Act of a certified true bill with proof of my identity, uh, my li- liability, excuse me, <laughs> with proof of no, my no, liability. No, mm-hmm. you, you want to you keep it simple. Um, oh, yeah. If you, if you start trying to sound like Perry Mason with these letters, um, then they're going to qualify you as a tax protester. Uh, making them an offer, right? Here. Yeah, but you don't, use, you don't use language like pursuant to the Administrative Procedures Act, da, da, da. It's like you're just a dumb dumb farmer and you don't know all about all that stuff. All you know is somebody sent you a bill and you want them to verify it. Okay. 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 Yeah. okay. Um, so I mean, that's a, that's a tactic. That's a tactic that I've used frequently in the courts. I'll go in and, you know, some attorney will think that he's dealing with some kind of a hayseed. And mm-hmm. I'll just, and I'll play the role. But before we're done, he just got an education in law. Great. Yeah. So use the kiss principle. Yeah. Absolutely. Use simple, stupid. Okay. That's right. Um, and so... Anyway, go ahead. Got to keep it simple because we're dealing with stupid people, right? Well, you lead them to believe that's what they're dealing with. That's when they make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you. All right. Southern California, when your phone mutes and unmutes, it's your turn. Hello. 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 Hello, Cat. Go ahead. Hey, this is Donnie. Uh, Monty, how you doing? Hi, Donnie. Yeah. Hey, I kind of came in a little bit late and missed you from the beginning. Uh, is it possible you could go over what the letter was about, or? Uh, um, well, it was kind of. A I don't want to take away from thing. the rest of the people. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. It was just to get things rolling. Okay. Um, okay. It's um, you know, it's Tad it, it has it both in written form and the uh, recording. So, you know, it's available. Okay. Uh, I get a problem. Yeah. Was that it or did you have a question? I have one question. When uh, I, I, I'm putting together some letters to a tax attorney, and I said to charge them no moral turpitude, 
Is there uh, a oh, sorry hold, hold it, hold it. You're breaking yeah. up start you or somebody was pushing buttons on the phone, so start oh, that question over if you would. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I know you said uh charge the attorneys with having no moral turpitude before. Is that right? What's that now? If I recall you said if I recall you said to charge the attorneys with having no moral turpitude. Yeah, if you want to. I mean, you better be prepared to prove that. I thought you said to do that and watch and see what happens. Well, you can do that too, but you should have some reasonable grounds for making that assertion. Right. Uh, is there a certain agency you would send a complaint into? Uh, it depends on what you're dealing with. Um, the... Um, thing that you get, need to realize about the bar is um, they have their own disciplinary board. And what we used to do is we would send in complaints against uh, various bar members, uh, particularly judges, and we'd fatten up their files on, in the uh, disciplinary board. And when the file gets thick enough, they will haul them in and uh, putting through the meat grinder on all these complaints in their file. Right. And uh, when you... Uh, Tad can actually fill you in on a little bit about the moral turpitude and the... Uh, uh, per- <laughs> not, not so much the per- uh, perfidy, but the moral turpitude. Uh, you want to fill him in, Tad? Yeah, if you want to look up their insurance program. No, not the insurance. It's in the uh, the bar examination in the code. If you look up what it takes to, uh, I guess, pass the bar, it states that they must have must have something about not exhibit moral turpitude. Right. Well, they have to take a note that they're a sound moral character. Right. And where they specific, yeah, and where they specifically mention moral turpitude is in the disciplinary end of things. Right. Okay. Yeah, I've done a little research. I know in the uh, original canons for the attorneys, judges, that's one of the requirements that they have moral, high moral turpitude. No, not turpitude. Moral uh, character. No, no. I think he was right. He was right. They have to have high moral turpitude because that's what we're getting. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got the canon around it somewhere. The original Tur- one. Right. Hold on, hold on, no. hold on. Turpitude, turpitude means that they're acting like a jerk, basically. No, it means evil. Evil. Yeah. No, that's the. Yeah. Okay, so just high moral character. Turpitude okay. is when they when they act evilly in relation to that. Okay. In other words, the moral code is the the yardstick. Right. That's character. Alrighty. Well, we're still doing a little homework, and I'll be in touch with you, Tad. I'm talking a little bit. Oh yeah. All right, Donnie. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. Okay, we're going to go to Oregon, I think. I know who this is. <laughs> Surprise. Hi. Hi. That's I not who I thought it was. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just happened to be talking about something. I was going to ask some questions about Monty. Well, about go right that. Ahead about that fella who didn't open up his 
his um, mail and returned uh-huh. it with the letter. And, and you said that you said something about he. Let me see what is the quote. But you mentioned when you spoke about it that we could get into some really, really deep difficulties with the courts if they sent to him two of those letters in a row at the same location. Yeah, she called harassment. So it's not it's not the the receiver who gets in trouble; it's the sender. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I didn't understand that last week. Yeah, yeah. it's a little clearer today because I got my property tax statement today, and I so I now want to follow up with these questions. All right. Um, you said that. Uh, you said to send it back unopened, but put it in a larger envelope with a letter requesting a verified true bill. But if we haven't opened up the envelope and haven't read the letter, why are we requesting a verified true bill? Shouldn't we wait for a letter actually addressed to the pro- to our correct name? Good question. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, this goes back to. There's another thing you need to add to this on your cover letter, and you're correct, you really shouldn't be bringing up the uh, details of the letter if you have not opened it. But, um, I mean, if you haven't opened it, how do you know what's in it? Right. Okay? So when you send it back, you say, if you're trying to reach me, the living person, here's how you do it. Can you use your title case name and proper address? Um, And then you can add in and say... um, um, oh, let's see. I'm trying to remember if, if I've given this over already. I think it's in the... Um, yeah, you'll have to have to jog my memory on this, whether I put this in or not. I think I have somewhere. You have to put in the statement, I have no memory of accepting any legal duty or obligation in relation to this fiction styled as, and then your name in all caps. Now, oh, okay. what you do there is you're saying, I have no written me- memory or written history where I, I have um, accepted any legal duty or obligation in relation to this fiction. Uh, if you have memory or something in writing that shows otherwise, I'd like to see it. Okay. Okay. And then you add in the part that if you're trying to reach me, the living person, here's how you do it. In other words, all the way through this thing, you're not resisting them. You're not giving an excuse to uh, drag you into court or anything like that. Is you're showing good faith. What what in your what you're doing in fact is called an interrogatory. You're just not in court yet. You're trying to establish the facts so you can make some reasonable um, determinations of what you're dealing with. <laughs> right. And if they say, well, is that your name? Well, it's not how I spell my name. It's not how I sign my name. It's not how I print my name. Here's how I print my name, how I sign my name. Um, I don't know anything about this thing. Yeah. I, don't know who this, I don't know who this is. 
to you. What makes you think that I'm responsible for it? I can touch on that a little bit on something else here. Okay. Um, if you don't mind. Please. Okay. Um, when when there's a criminal matter, and I'll use a you know building code violation or a traffic citation, anything along those lines, uh, you're entitled on the quote-unquote criminal side for discovery demands. Okay? Yes. Now, in Chapter 5 in Volume 2 of my handbook, I think it starts about page 43 or 44, somewhere in there, I have a full disclosure questionnaire which really gets in detail on that particular thing. Now, remember, that's on the criminal side, so-called. And one of the things you ask for in there, which I didn't do in, in the handbook, but you could add it in, you want the name current address and phone number of the holder in due course on the instrument styled as citation number da da da. Now, that's something they're not going to want to answer. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And the other, the other thing you can add in there is you want the, and this is all under discovery, which you're entitled to on the criminal side, um, name, current address, and phone number of the legal guardian or representative of your all-caps name. I'm asking for the legal representative for my all-caps name? Asking for, you're asking for the name, current address, and phone number of the legal guardian or representative of your all-caps name. You've already told them you're not responsible for it, so who is? Do you ever get a reply? No, they don't want to answer these questions. <laughs> okay, okay. That's a what one of the best ways to get a case dismissed. Hmm. Um, now, as I pointed out in the handbook, uh, this is not the same thing as interrogatories, which are primarily uh, civil. Oh. It amounts to the same thing. Interrogatories can be used exactly the same way, but it's in a civil suit. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, and I think I just said that a few minutes ago to Bob. Um, interrogatories, their purpose is to establish facts, not arguments, establish facts with which you can formulate arguments. Because until you have the facts, you don't know what to argue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And they recognize that. Now, the other thing, uh, kind of keep in the back of your mind, um, actually a couple of things, keep in the back of your mind. And I think I've mentioned this first part previously. No law, there's no law requiring the use of their forms. Yes, you have mentioned that. And you also say that if you use your own form, putting the necessary information that they're looking for on their forms, then you can uh, tailor your form to put in whatever information you'd like. Well, what it amounts to is you're giving them what they want for information, but you're qualifying it to fit your requirements. Okay. See, on their forms, they don't allow you to qualify your signature. They don't allow you to do a whole lot of things. When you do it your way, you're putting all the qualifiers in. 
and they're still getting what they asked for. Oh, I like that so much. Okay. Yes. Now, if they come back on that, you know, if you have to bring that up to them, you know, show me the law that requires me to use your forms, they may come back and say that it's department policy. Okay. Well, then you come back and say, well, then show me the law which compels me to comply with your department policy. Well, if you want our services, you have to comply. Uh, show me the law that that authorizes you to put conditions on my use of your services. Well, uh, well, uh, well, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> it always goes back to the same thing. Where's your enabling authority? Oh, that's something that we should all be taught in school. Uh-huh. Absolutely. We knew it when we were two years old. Yeah. It's kind of like I told uh, Chad uh, on the subject of fear. A lot of people are, are fearful when they go into court or they're fearful of traffic stops. They're fearful of this or that. And I've never felt fear in my entire life. I have been nervous a couple, uh, two or three times. But that was over uh, lack of confidence in my own performance uh, ability. As far as fear, I have never actually felt fear. Wow. Lucky That's guy. Something, no. <laughs> you're not born with fear. It, that's something you have to learn. So when you feel fear, you have to ask yourself, where did I learn that? Raises it's the question, an, how are you raised? A, yeah, it's an acquired thing. You weren't born with it. Huh. I'm hearing an awful lot of silence. Must be much thinking going on there. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Well, they're thinking and also waiting for you to, if you if you are continuing to continue. <laughs> oh, you're, you're you're waiting for the other shoe to fall. Well, it isn't going to fall. That was all I had to say on that. Now, <clears throat> the other thing to keep in the back of your mind um, that a lot of people, uh, patriot litigators and such, um, haven't really picked up on is whenever you get into a case that involves both state and federal statutes, you always have the ability, let's say you're in state court on something, some matter of another, or another, you always have the uh, ability under their rules to use what is known as removal of cause. And that's usually titled a writ of removal, and you're going to remove the action before final judgment. It has to take place before final judgment. Otherwise, you're on the appellate line. It's called a writ of removal, and you remove the cause into a federal trial court to settle the federal issues. And that can include declaratory judgments, which are going to have a profound effect on the state case. And then when you're done with that, in other words, you're, you're doing a writ of removal for the purpose of declaratory judgment on the equity side of the federal court, trial court, which would be a district court. And um, and then when the district court, the federal district court is done with that, and they've given you your declaratory judgment on the federal issues, then you have the federal court remand it back to the state court. 
and then you finish what you're doing there. Huh. I'm not sure I catch the the point of doing that. In fact, I'm sure I don't. If the state court is running over the top of some of your federally secured rights with uh, no apparent authority or whatever, and they haven't been known to do that now and then, uh-huh. um, then you remove it to the federal court because they are federally protected rights. It is a federal issue, okay. not a state issue. So you remove the action, which puts the state action in suspension, and you remove it to the federal court for a declaratory judgment on the federal issues, which is um, has to do with the rights secured to you under federal authority. And once you have your declaratory judgment, now the state court has nowhere to go because of the supremacy clause in the Constitution. And you go back on a remand back into the state court, and you say, okay, now let's deal. <laughs> but they, but the wind has already been taken out of their sails. Is Absolutely. what you're saying. Okay. I've been neutered. I mean, I've seen so many patriot litigators try to argue federal issues in a state court, and it isn't, it isn't going to fly. They don't have jurisdiction over that. So, do you get? Do you actually go into the federal court? The district yeah. court? Okay. Absolutely. But you go in for one purpose and one purpose only. You take your federal issues, put them in the form of a declaratory judgment, either as a motion or as an original action. And that's under a writ of removal. And um, have them give you a declaratory judgment. The uh, state attorney general will probably show up to argue against it if, they, if they're going to show up at all. And. Um, if the federal court gives you your declaratory judgment, um, then you and then you request they remand it back to the state court. They'd probably do that automatically, but you, it's a good idea to ask for it and have them remand it back. And then you go step back in with uh, uh, instead of a toothpick, you're ste- stepping mm-hmm. back into the, into the arena with the state court with a tube before in your hand. No. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it's called a larger instrument of persuasion. (laughs) So, do you have more to say on that, or can I continue asking my questions about this? Oh, that was pretty much it. You can go ahead and continue. Okay, thanks. Continue. All right. Um, Okay, so back to the unopened letter in the envelope with the letter. That is, okay. Um, okay. Do how do we sign the letter? Do we do we just do it uh, title case with that, anything behind it, like in essay or a sui juris or anything like that? Well, this, this is one where you especially want to put the qualifier in your signature, non assumptive per item sonansen uh, persona picta. Oh. Okay, okay. You're telling them right up front, you're not going to accept anything through or by or through a fictitious entity with a name that sounds the same as yours when spoken. Okay. You just trash, when you do that, you just trash and trash their items and ends doctrine. Okay. And let's see. 
my next question is, you know, these are pre-written, so I'm not sure if it's relevant at the moment. Then, then when they send, okay, let's say they send the bill back to us in the proper title case name, and we then send, go, no, then go ahead and open it. Okay, then we then we send a letter requesting a verified true bill, which there you, you go. said they won't send us. And no, uh, they don't. They can't. Right. They're not going to go to all that trouble. No, they're not going to get themselves in a very deep liability situation. Okay, so that should pretty much put a stop to it. But is is there more that we can say in... Uh, well, they're not ever going to... Okay, I guess that's that should just be it, huh? Yeah, I told people, you know, you don't have to complicate this. It's pretty, usually pretty simple. And I found that the simpler it is, the more powerful it is. Now, if you got to remember, you're dealing with people that are have been as miseducated as you probably were, as I they tried to do to me. Okay. Um. So you know, cut them some slack. Oh yeah, I'm not feeling you know nasty toward them. I just want them to go away. Well, no, you you. You want to cooperate, you just want them to... It's kind of like Voltaire said. You know who Voltaire was? Well, I've heard of him, huh? Yeah, he's a French philosopher. Right. Okay. And uh, I believe it was him. Um, and he said, um, before I will argue with you, define your terms. That's a great thing to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Define your terms. That'll yeah. shut them up. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> I've heard some pretty silly arguments where people are t- arguing about two different things, and they think they're arguing the same thing. So I really <laughs> like that quote. Yeah. Um, mo- most really good truths or good sayings about truth are... Um, very, very simply stated, and they they give almost anyone pause for thought. If uh, okay, so I'm going to go <laughs> pausing for thought. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's see what's this last question. You said that this process won't necessarily put an end to property taxes, but if it does continue then we can go after them for harassment. So um, if, her, yeah. Or am I mispronouncing that? Harassment? Oh, it doesn't matter. It depends on whether you're from England or, or America. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Cheerio. So if they, then if they send me uh, the property, a property tax statement in my correct title case name, then go ahead and open it. And then that's where you ask them for a certified true bill. Okay. 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 Because you had mentioned uh, recently to send them a letter or notice warning them that they are harassing me. Uh, that would be a little premature at that point. Okay. Okay. I think that... And the one thing you always want to do with these, these things when you do it this way is keep copies of everything. You want a paper trail on this. 
Okay. So if they try to haul you into court, you can show the court, you can pick up all your paperwork and bring it in, and you can say, I bent over backwards to work with these people, and they haven't answered my question. They haven't verified their bill. Um, and I think under the UCC um, uh, 3-501, I'm entitled to that. Okay, great. And and you were also saying um, something... It'd be like Sears and Roebuck sending you a bill and you've never had an account with them. Yeah, I really, I like the idea of verifying the the bill. I think, and yeah. And their authority for sending it to you. That means they got to produce a contract with your signature on it. Well, you said something last week or recently... When we record the title to our property at the county, we are volunteering the title into the state's asset inventory. That's and, correct. And I don't understand that because I thought recording it was just letting people know, like making a public record of it, and then putting it in a file cabinet for safekeeping, and that well, registering it was something. Registering something was what gave it over to the state. Also well, in most, in, yeah, in most questions, I mean, in most locations, not only is it recorded, there's also title insurance on it because you don't have, I'm, when I was saying that, I was talking about the people who actually had the original land patents. Oh. Okay? Yes. Well, they no longer have those. The court, uh, the, the uh, county has them. They won't accept copies. They only accept originals. They'll only accept originals of the land patent? Right. And if you ask, I'll give you an exercise. You want to really dig into this and figure it out. Uh, okay? Yeah. But, yeah, it could be a little bit of fun if you do it right. Um, does, it entail, does it entail looking things up on the computer? Well, it may a little bit, but... Oh, I was almost in tears today trying to find some stuff. <laughs> I'm self-taught on the computer, and I really haven't quite figured it out yet. Okay, if you want a, a, an interesting exercise, okay. it'll be very, very, very educational, and maybe even a little fun if you do it right. All right. Go down to the county courthouse and tell them you want to, uh, you want to know, you can do it as a... Uh, full disclosure request or a, a state equivalent of FOIA or whatever. It doesn't really matter. You just tell them, I, I want to know who is in physical custody or possession of the title to this building. And this building being my building? Or no, the courthouse. Oh, well, okay. who's, holding the who's holding the title on the courthouse? Oh. Now, I'll tell you this. It's supposed to be the county commissioners um, are in custody of it, and it's usually should be in the possession of the uh, county recorder or county clerk. But in most cases, you're going to find, I think, that the title to the building is either held by a private individual, uh, sometimes uh, connected in some way with the bar, or 
it's going to be held by a title insurance company. What do you think these title insurance companies do? They can't insure the title unless they're holding it. Oh. Oh. How else are they going to insure it if they're not holding it? And I've had title insurance companies tell me uh, when we took a land patent into them and wanted uh, title insurance, they said, there's nothing to insure. You're holding the title. So that could uh, cause a little... Uh, that could cause a few of your county officials to scratch their head and start questioning what the hell's going on here. When you say, who's holding the title? Who's in possession of and in the... In whose custody is the title of this building? Oh. Supposed to be the people of the county, as represented by the commissioners and the county recorder. Huh. So you want to do that? No. I don't know of anybody that's done it. <laughs> uh, I'm the only one that I know of that's done that. It, and what it response was, did you get? Um. They actually dug up one where it was a it really wasn't a title, it was a conveyance on the sidewalk on one end of the uh, courthouse grounds. It's where they conveyed it over to the city so they could widen the street. And who do you ask again? Um, you go down to the uh, county recorder's office and say uh, um, i you go into your uh, deeds. I, I don't know what book they'd keep it in, but it'd be in one of them. Okay. I want to know who's holding the title on this building. You could also go to the assessor's office. They would know. Okay. And, uh, you know, they'll probably refer you to the, a title insurance company to do a title search. And they want like four or $500 for that usually. But you can say, well, you know, I'm not asking for a title search. I'm on, I want to know who's holding it. Yeah, exactly. Who's holding the title? <clears throat> now, this gets into what they've pledged to the uh, national debt. And it gets into a whole bunch of stuff. I don't even want to get into, I don't even get involved in that. We'd be here for six or eight hours. <laughs> <clears throat> you know... Uh, where I live, I don't have any home delivery. I just have my mail delivered to a post office box. Okay, that... well, you have, a con you have a contract with a corporation set up in 1971 called the U.S. Postal Service. It's a federal corporation. I thought they were set up in the Civil War. No, 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 no. The It was the Postal Reorganization Act of 1971 under Nixon. Okay. Where they created a federal corporation. The post office was in trouble financially, so to straighten all that out, they set up this corporation in 1971 called the United States Postal Service. And they're a contractor uh, performing the function of the post office, uh, but as a corporation. So you have a contract with this corporation to use one of their boxes. Does that change my address? That is, my mailing address. Is it then well, incorrect for me to put near uh, bracket zip code bracket? 
Well, that depends. Like, for example, uh, the main post office in Portland, the main post office in Spokane, are two that I know of for sure, <laughs> were actually purchased by the United States government. So the zip code is appropriate, unadorned, because that is a federal enclave. But in most instances, especially in the more rural areas, they haven't purchased that, that post office. They're renting or leasing it. In which case, the zip code is not appropriate. That's where you use the in, pro in proximity to. Okay, good. All right. And then I have some questions, if you don't mind, about the schedule of fees and charges. Again, I still have it. We're trying to get it out on Monday, to the uh, newspaper on Monday. I have so a question for you. Okay. Are you going to beat the crap out of me if I, if I do mind? Yeah. <laughs> you better well, believe it. Okay, go ahead. You're my lifeline on this. Uh, should the notice should the notice be one long sentence, you know, just using semicolons instead of periods? Um, whatever you're most comfortable with. I I tend to try and um I'll, I'll give you the name of another book that's extremely it's well worth the read. Okay. Uh, Rudolph Flesch. It's spelled F-L-E-S-C-H. Okay. Time Magazine called him the Mr. Fixes of the English Language. Oh. He wrote three books, one of which you may be familiar with is Why Johnny Can't Read. <laughs> yeah, I've heard his name, and I think I've heard of that book, too. Right. Well, he wrote two others. One was called The Art of Plain Writing. Hmm. The Art of Plain Talk. And <clears throat> if you're going to teach yourself how to write effectively, I would recommend that, how The Art of Readable Writing. Um, what he recommends in there, because of the, uh, you know, the dumbing down that's been going on for so long in the schools, uh, and it, I mean, that's filtered all the way up to the top now into government offices and so on. Um, it's best if you can use as simple a word as you can mm -hmm. use to use uh, short sentences. In other words, these paragraph-long sentences with semicolons and commas and dashes and so on and so forth, that's legalese. And he gave an example in there, which I thought was really cool, of a uh, paragraph that was written that way in a uh, proposed bill in the House of Representatives. And then he says, here's, what it, here's how it reads in plain English. And he wrote it in one sentence. <laughs> oh. Okay? Yeah. The other thing that I do with my legal documents that I put into a court, I don't write them. I mean, I write them for the judge. I write them for the attorneys. But the way I write them is for a jury. Smart. And... So the language is, they're both educational and um, legally effective at the same time. And you may have noticed that on some of the stuff I've put in the tab for you guys to share, you know, to share with you guys. Um, the other thing I do is I write logically. In other words, um, when I'm addressing, like for example, I'm doing a declaratory judgment right now, and it's in seven parts. 
and all seven parts follow a natural progression that you don't have to, it's kind of like you don't have to flip back from page 60 back to page one to see what the hell I'm referring to. Right. Okay? Yeah. And judges appreciate that as well. Oh, I would bet. Um, and I've had judges actually say that, you know, <clears throat> I actually had heard a judge once tell a, a litigant, <laughs> patriot litigant, to hand it in a 50-page brief, and he chastised him. He said, what do you think the word brief means? <laughs> <laughs> so when, when he said, I'll tell you something right now. Typically what happens when we get these book-sized briefs, we either hand them over to the law clerks and let them figure it out, and we act on what they decide, or we throw them in the trash can. Wow. Okay? I mean, he was pretty adamant. Hmm. I think that was a federal judge in San Francisco. But at any rate, um, <clears throat> so anyway, let's get back to what you were talking about. Well, thank you. Uh, I think uh, the only reason I thought of using semicolons is because I've read somewhere way back when you semicolons and and you've got a lot of them in there. Or I know, I know. And so I was just thinking, I'll just have it one flow, one long sentence. So you're saying well, I could yeah, if you, I want, or I don't have to. No, you can break it into shorter sentences. It's going to require a little bit of. Uh, change in the grammar as long as you don't change the, the flow of the concepts. Right. Okay. Because words words are just symbols that represent concepts. And like water, they flow a certain way. Hmm. And Aren't if you, you wanted, poetic? Well, it's not just poetic. <laughs> uh, that's also how music is written. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, it's, do you want to as far as sounds go, do you want to listen to music that's arranged with a meter, or do you want to listen to fingernails on a, on a chalkboard? <laughs> let, let me think about that one for a minute. I'll get back to you on it. All right. Is the title of uh, of this uh, schedule of fees and charges in all caps, or is um, that going to be up to the the newspaper? That's going to probably be up to the newspaper. You can ask them to put it in title case, and they might do that. I don't know. It just okay. means they have to use a larger font size. Oh, okay. Um, and then the the really big question that I have is, in it it says, quote, lawful money of the United States of America, and you suggested last week that we could add or equivalent currency at par value. Right. And here are my questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, looking it up in blacks, lawful money equals legal tender. And so, legal tender is Federal Reserve notes, includes Federal Reserve notes. So, right. so I'm so basically what I'm saying in my schedule is that I I'm that I'll accept whatever I whatever I get. Is that correct? Um, you're you're giving them some options. In other words, consider it like a negotiation. Okay. All right. You're saying, well, you can pay me in uh, 
in feathers or you can pay me in monopoly money or whatever you want to pay me with as long as it's of equivalent value. To lawful, to, to what? Equivalent to what, I guess, is the question. Lawful money of the United States of America. But if so, the definition has been has been changed from from dollars, right? And when they if they try to come back with that, saying that that definition no longer applies because Congress changed it, uh, then you that opens the door. You can say, oh, really? Um, what was their enabling authority that empowered them to do that? Huh. Well, I looked it up. Uh, I looked up uh, whatever it was, U.S. 31 or, I mean, you know, what is that? Um, title well, 31. That, yeah. I looked it up. And they're doing it. They they removed the a uh, whole bunch of these words to, to be uh, economical in space. Oh. That, that's what they say, but that oh. wasn't the real reason. Oh, I'm sure of it. But it made me <laughs> laugh. <laughs> So when you go back to that, there's two questions that have never been put in front of the Supreme Court. What? Regarding Article 1, Section 10, and that's what we're talking about. The states cannot compel anything but gold and silver coin in payment of ten, in, uh, as a tender in payment of debt. Okay? Okay. Now, they can voluntarily do whatever they want, but they can't compel anything except gold and silver coin, which the Coinage Act defined as lawful money of the United States of America. So, the two questions that have never been put in front of the Supreme Court, and on, that's on purpose, by the way, um, is uh, where, what specific article, section, and clause of the Constitution of the United States empowers Congress or the Senate or any instrumentality of the United States government to authorize or require the states to do something that the Constitution expressly forbids them from doing. Hmm. Where do they get that authority? Hmm. Where's, give me the exact article section clause where they were empowered to he either amend the Constitution without going through the amendment provisions by statute or to, by statute, authorize or require the states to do something that they are expressly forbidden from doing by the Constitution. The, the bar maggots have very carefully kept those two questions away <laughs> from the Supreme Court. Huh. <laughs> Yeah. Or maggots. I love that. No, maggots. Yeah, yeah larva, larva flies. Maggots. M-A-G-G-O-T-S. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, in the... In the um, also, in the schedule of fees and charges, it says of the United States of America, and I'm wondering if it's, uh, okay, so I looked up the Coinage Act of 1792, and it refers only to the United States. It doesn't say okay. of America. 
Okay, and I would, you know, uh, I'll I'll own up to that. My mistake. Okay. Oh um, no, no, Monty, no! You don't make mistakes. <laughs> oh, no. now everything you've done is in question. No. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the the thing that I'm I'm going back to continually, especially now. You know, I'm I'm learning this stuff as, as I go along too. I mean, uh, I'm not 100% on it, but one thing I have learned is that, like your question about the proper title to use for the Constitution of the State of Oregon, you go back to the original document because that's what created that entity. So that's the proper name to use. So the same thing on this statute. What did the statute say? And you just pointed that out. It didn't say United States of America. It said United States. So that's what you go with. Okay. Good. Um, so let's see. This might be a repeat. Uh, regarding, uh, quote, or equivalent currency at par value, quote, if I were able to bill someone for $1,000, then they would pay me in Federal Reserve notes at the rate that silver is being sold by the U.S. Mint? Is that what that yeah. at par value means? Exactly. Okay. And the way you get the evidence of that, Ted, do you want to tell her? You've already done it. You go to the U.S. Mint website and look it up. It's. It, I don't know that it's accurate though. I think I think that's for uncirculated coins. Because well, the amount with the amounts involved, what do you care? <laughs> well, there is a little bit of why you should care, because. <laughs> If if it comes out to be ridiculous, it's going to be bigger than the courts can handle. You didn't create the ridiculous part. They did. <laughs> okay. And you, you said last week that this stuff relates to uh, a court case called Batten Holding? Uh, that was where they tried, They gutted the um, Batten Holding. Uh, you have to sometimes read way down into the dicta to find it. The Batten Holding is where they explained what Congress did when they gutted the definitions out of the uh, Title 31. But I want to point out something here. Wait, before you, you move you, on, what is the spelling of Batten Holding? B-A-T-T-E-N. Okay. H-O-L-D-I-N-G. Oh, okay. Well, that holding was a trust. That's why I was practically in tears today. I could not find it. I don't know how to find it. Was that um, the was that a Supreme Court case or? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Now, what uh-huh. are you going to point out? Are you aware of the bifurcation? Of the bifurcation of what? All right. Um, that tell, that answered my question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your question answered mine. Um, okay, Envision, we started out with the uh, Articles from Confederation, the Constitution, and et cetera, et cetera. That was de jure. And Envision it as a train track starting off in the horizon and and coming in a straight line, and it's still being constructed going off in the other direction, straight line. Okay. 
between 1873 and 1875, all of the law, no, all of the laws under the Constitution are referred to as statutes at large. Those are actual laws, presumably pursuant to the supreme law. Between 1873 and 1875, Congress, more or less, I'm this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of took a recess, and the way you can verify this is going back into the old statutes at large uh, of that period, and because they always published them. They have to do that. If they don't publish the laws, you, they can't expect you to comply with them. Okay. So... Um, they always publish the statutes at large, but between 1873 and 1875, the title page, the flyleaf page in the front, said United States Code. That's when they created the code. And that was the bifurcation. That's where they created the bylaws for the corporation. Now, from that point forward, and then in 1876, they resumed publishing the statutes of large. So what you have now is you have two train tracks running side by side. One is uh, governed by the statutes of large. That's the main line. And the spur line running parallel to it is the one governed by the code. The problem is that most of the people got off the train on the main line and got on the one on the spur line. There's hardly anybody on the other train. That's not as well maintained and it's really bumpy. Yeah, and if you'll check the bills that go through Congress and have for quite some time, since that time, they are very particular about what they're changing because when they do a bill, they're either amending, removing, or adding something to the code. Or if they're... Uh, removing, adding, or changing something in the statutes at large, they will specifically say so. They, they make a distinction between the two. So when you're saying, show me the law, you're not saying, show me the code. Show me the law. You're jumping back on the other train. Oh. And do the statutes at large, um, are they also divided as uh, state laws are or state? No, you're talking, about, you're talking about codification again. Okay. <laughs> They're not codified. They're in, in chronological order. The subject matter jumps all over the place. Uh, so, but there are indexes so you can... Uh, oh. Uh, fairly rapidly because the statute at large takes up a very large amount of space on a bookshelf. They've been at this a long time. <laughs> yeah. So what they do is, and the more recent statutes at large, is they're still statutes at large, but they use they, they modify the code with them. And that's why you'll always hear them say that the code, U.S. Code, uh, the uh, revised code of Washington, the revised code of California, whatever, is only evidence of the law. It's not law. Oh. I mean, any judge or attorney will tell you that. 
The codes are only evidence of the law. They're not the law. So, the, and they don't apply to American nationals because the codes are political? They do it. They do if you recklessly put your signature on a piece of paper that made you subject to the codes. Recklessly. Oh, I was thinking of after having... <laughs> okay. Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know any better. Oh, okay. I've heard that before. <laughs> no. <laughs> Starting with me. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that wraps up my my questions um, for the evening. I have a slew of them, but, gee, I think it's time to get somebody else on, don't you? Uh, it could be time to end the call. Oh. <laughs> well, then I'll keep so, talking. <laughs> you'll keep talking. Hey, wait, 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 wait. Okay, we got somebody from Georgia that wants to talk. All right. Okay. All right, thank you, Monty. Thank you, Genevieve. Thank you, Dad. I really, really appreciate you both so much. I'm going to hang up now and just listen. Oh, no, no, no. Stay on in case we have to defer to your opinion. Oh, (laughs) yeah, like my opinion's worth anything. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. Thank you again. Good night. Hey, Georgia, I'm going to mute your phone and then unmute you, and then it's your turn. I'm Uncle Gus. How are you doing? Well, howdy. Howdy. <laughs> howdy. <laughs> I'm in the habit in my family of calling anybody older than me uncle and auntie. That's just the way we do things. So uh, I think it's pretty cool that, that you allow us to do that. Yeah, so how how you all doing down there in Georgia? Oh, man. Weather's <laughs> been lovely for the past two weeks. Really low humidity. We were sitting out in the backyard with the tiki's going. That's where uh, I did my air. Yeah, that's where I did my airborne training. Really? Yeah, Fort Benning. Oh, okay. I'm actually from um, from South Georgia, Moody Air Force Base, Bella. Oh, okay. Yeah. But um, anyway, I just wanted to briefly ask you something, and it may be a simple answer or not. I've listened to a lot of the conference calls, and I've kind of gotten an idea of what I want to do. But you may have a simpler answer. Um, my my grandfather and our family are barbers, and basically right. we we've been barbering for for years. Him over fifty years. I started out of high school, so I've been doing it for about eighteen. But in Georgia, um, the state requires licensure for barbers, and what we're trying to do is avoid contracting with the state. Um, so I'm trying to figure out a way to get around doing it. What I was suggested to do was to do a private club to where it was essentially a contract between us and the people whose hair we cut, but I'm not sure what what else you may suggest. Basically, they can come in at any time, demand everybody's barber's license, if the license aren't up to date, they can find find you. They can find you for different things in your shop, and pretty much you rack up a bill by the time they're done. Okay, um, the, and it's, um, to shut off, shut the door on any possible excuse they might have for that. 
you always want to make sure your shop is immaculately clean so they don't have any health issues because you are serving the public from their viewpoint. All right? Right. And they have an obligation to ensure public safety and health. Um, and that's one of the first things they look at is whether or not it's a healthy environment. That's not hard to do. Um, right. And um, the... Um, uh, there's a number of things you could do. Uh, your idea is valid, by the way. You could do it that way. Or, um, because it's then, as you say, it's under private contract. Contract law is superior to everything. It is superior even to the Constitution. You can even look at the Constitution as a form of contract. Okay. A, a social compact, they, that's what they refer to it as, a social compact is a form of contract. Right. So, um, and uh, Judge Anna out of Alaska has some good information on that, if you ever want to check her out. Um, but um, you could do that the way you want to do it, or, um, or actually you could do both ways. You could write a letter back to them, uh, to the licensing board, uh, who handles that? Uh, state licensing department or a board or who handles the licensing? The Secretary of State. Um, and the, and the okay. other thing is most of the, I guess the biggest issue is most of the guys that I know, you know, especially in our neighborhood, my grandfather apprenticed and helped to, to or train them to cut hair, and I have as well, but the state says you can only have one apprentice per master per shop. So I'm the only master, so it limits me to having one person working in my shop, whereas I've got <laughs> five or six guys, you know, that can cut. Five right. guys cut professionally, know how to cut. They just don't have the benefit of a state license. Right. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a real estate agent. Uh, several of them operating under a uh, one broker's license type of thing. Um, right. Well, what you could do is you could write to the Secretary of State a nice letter, and uh, you don't have to try to play Perry Mason with it or anything. Just keep it simple and say, could you show me uh, the enabling authority which empowers the state of Georgia, use the, all ca use the title case uh, uh, name, state of Georgia, uh, or any of its instrumentalities, and that's a critical part of that is you have to say, or any of its instrumentalities, which includes the all-caps state of Georgia, <clears throat> to compel me to exercise my right to support myself and my family. Wow. Okay. Okay? Um, compel... No, I'm sorry, I didn't say that right. Right. The enabling authority which empowers the state of Georgia, a title case, or any of his instrumentalities to compel me to subordinate or surrender my right to uh, public policy um, in order to support myself and my family. Okay. Now you're invoking rights, protected rights. All so right. you just, you're, and it's a nice letter. It's just saying, would you please show me the enabling authority? They can't do it. It isn't there. Right, right, right. It's a question they can't answer or won't answer. Right. 
So you. you could do that. You could do that alongside of doing what you want to do with the private club thing. Either way would work. Right, and and that's the thing. It's like you know, people are trying to make a living, and that's and that's and and as there's this, you know, it's this fee, that fee. It's just by the time you finish, it's just you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm paying you this for what? <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. Then, I mean, you, well, you know, the other way. <laughs> The other viewpoint you could put on it, I wouldn't put that in this particular letter, but you could say, you know, a license is permission to do something that is otherwise un- illegal to do or not do. So right. could, you, could you show me how cutting people's hair who voluntarily come into my shop and want me to cut their hair, um, <clears throat> how that is a, an, a, uh, an illegal activity? Okay. Yeah, that, that I can I can I can see the reasoning behind that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, just always keep it simple. Um, I do it all the time. I mean, I think I've established that I'm a little smarter than I probably look. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, I've done it in courts. I've done it you know, many, 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 many times because it disarms people. They don't go on the defensive when you look like you just fell off the turb- turnip wagon. Right, <laughs> but right. you're you're. Uh, but I'm I'm very deadly when it comes to the legal stuff. But I try to put it in a humorous vein, right? To um, to lighten the tone or the tenor, so that they're not they don't go on the defensive. Right, and that's not what I'm. That's what I'm trying to avoid because I listen to the the talks about the schedule of fees, and I want to do that eventually just for my whole. Life just just being able to move about unencumbered, but the yeah. uh, but for this I want to do something simple because I don't want to start a big a big racket. And it's like I guess what I've noticed with them, even in my dealings with them up to this point, it's like if you kind of keep I don't want to say keep quiet, but I'm not really trying to. It's not like I'm leading a crusade. I just basically want to be left alone. I'm not doing the pub, any harm to the public. We're clean, we're courteous. You know, yeah. I even put no, notice up in the shop just to let people know, you know, what our intentions were and what our agreement are is at, at the moment before we actually formally did the club, just to just to show people, okay, we have your best interest at heart here. We're not going to harm you. If we do, we're going to cover it. We'll work it out between each other. But it's just the state wants, in Georgia, the state sticks their nose into everything. Um, the only other aspect you might want to consider, and I don't know quite how to answer this because I don't know what your particulars are. Um, if you previously had a license, and I'm assuming you did, um, because the the other question is if you, uh, um, basically sever that relationship, it is a contractual relationship with the state. If you sever that, um, then then you can legitimately ask the question, when, where, and how, and by what authority did the state acquire a proprietary interest in my livelihood? Uh, and I'm okay. thinking about the implications oh, wow. of what you just said. But that, that could end up being rather contentious, so I'm, I'm, I don't think you want to go there. Right, <laughs> right. That, that, yeah, that's that. The, the the number one thing on my mind has been, you know, 
try to be, you know, um, cordial and and not and not going defensive. But you know, if I have to, it's one thing. Maybe I'll set a precedent for other people in a similar situation. But I'm trying to avoid that if possible. So, right. What I generally tell people, um, and I don't care if they're wearing a badge and uniform or if they're wearing a continental business suit or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I just tell them, you know. My preference is cordial relations and friendship. That's my preference. But if you want if you want to make me an enemy, I'll be the best enemy you ever had. Wow. Yeah. I don't want to be, but if you want me to be, I will be. Right. And it's kind of like in the, in the climate that we're living in, you kind of got to have that type of mentality because if not, it pretty much says, well, it's okay to keep doing what you're doing or doing it to the next person. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to take a stand at the same time. So like I said, I'm, I'm willing to do that, but if I don't have to do it, I'll save that for when it's necessary. Yeah. You just say, I'm not here to make problems for you. I'm just here to uh, make a living, support myself and my family. Right, exactly. As are all these other gentlemen here. Or right. I don't know, maybe you have some females there too, but <laughs> No, it's all it's all guys. It's all guys. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, does awesome. that more or less answer your question? It did, and I'm not gonna hold you guys up, but I appreciate it. I just I I tend to overthink things sometimes or maybe make them a little bit too complicated, so I'm like maybe there's a simple well, answer, but I'd like to say something about that. I think your approach of having it be within a private group is phenomenal. I've thought about that myself, where yeah. you do kind of like a, a a motel, like here in Oregon. You know, if you want to rent out a like a cottage or something, then it falls under the motel tax and the regulation and all that. But if you made it available only to private clubs, well, it is no longer a motel, is it? Right, exactly. Yeah, just don't incorporate it. Don't make it a club med. Ah, club <laughs> med. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah, that I mean that yeah that, and and I think that yeah that that'll be the the only thing I had somebody mention, and it's and that and that's like I said that's really if the state even cares enough to take that much of an interest in me, but. They were just saying, just I I need to make it really look like that's what it is, right. because yeah, to actually make it really look like it is a club. So, you know, having and, some dialogue or yeah, and just be innocent but bold as brass. Don't be furtive about what you do. Right. Right. All right. When you, I got when you toss in, yeah, when you toss in the innocent part, that's like uh, the innocence of a of a youth or a child. It's like, uh, oh, you mean I can't do that? Well, show me why I can't. Right. <laughs> right. I want. Right. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uncle Gus and Tad, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. I think I'm I'm ready to move forward, but I just wanted to run that by some people that are thinking uh, a few years ahead of me. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for calling in. Uh, oh, thank no you. problem. Thank you. All right.
Okay, so Monty, here's a little thing going on in the chat I want to share with you, get your opinion on. Okay. I was running a large excavator I owned. I was approached with a demand for a license. I asked a few qualifying questions. I then offered to get one if he gave me a written order. No order, just silence, got paid, game over. Piece of cake. Other friends doing license activities also let alone upon offer to obey written order. Works like a charm. Yeah, he's right. Because if they actually gave him a written order, they're wide open on liability. Would that include a CDL for a truck driver? Uh, that's a little bit different because you're getting into, so. and I cover that in, I think I cover that somewhat in volume two of the handbook as to why. Yeah, it is a little bit different. That's, uh, you're on the public roadways and your, your activity could put the well, public. The, the only, the only way that it, it would, uh, not entirely apply is if you own the, the truck and if you own what you're hauling on that truck. Sure. But you still oh, yeah. have to meet you still have to meet the safety requirements as far as uh, um, uh, the state or condition of the vehicle and right. uh, and the um, you know like weight restrictions because if you start tearing up their bridges with overweight loads um, so they have some justification for it but. Um, that's one you want to be really careful with because uh, sure. you're you're engaged in commerce, obviously engaged in commerce on the highways. Um, so, so this gentleman says uh, CDLs on private public property, excavator on private property. Well, as I said, if if you own the rig and you own what you're hauling on that rig, right, then you're not engaged in commerce. So it's kind of like. Uh, for my off-grid scenario, if I own the rig and I'm going to pick up wood chips to use in the growing areas, uh, then uh, and if it's for a private association, same thing. Right. And the other thing so. that you can do is uh, if people want to avoid, um, you know, confrontations and, and contention and all of that uh, from a a more positive approach is you could write to uh, DMV or whoever handles it and ask for a certificate of, of exemption and state your reasons. Oh, get this. He says, yes, I know a man who owns a truck and load and has no license. He buys what he hauls and then sells after delivery. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> oh, how funny. I was raised by a, a truck owner. Uh, my uncle had uh, four trucks. He mainly hauled livestock, but he also hauled freight. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with the trucking industry. In fact, I was I was driving 18 wheelers before I was old enough to have a learner's permit, and I was doing it better than some of his drivers. But I had a very good instructor. Okay, so did your trucks have one gear shift lever or two? They had we had two gearboxes, fifteen gears forward, three uh four reverse. So white you, freight 
white Freightliner cab overs with 318 two cycle jimmies. So you had two gear shift levers? Yeah. Okay. I have never seen one of those. You haven't? Nope. You're giving away your age. Uh, <laughs> you're giving away your age. Yeah, I guess I am, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> they replaced the levers with buttons, which is a lot easier to operate. Oh, I'm sure it is. Well, at least you he he educated you on how to operate the, the gearboxes, right? He didn't just say, here's the keys, kid, now go in there and drive it. No, there's there's a lot more to just shifting gears on a truck. Because I hear that story over and over. You know, I'm self-taught. They told me to get in that truck, and I learned for myself. I'm like, okay, whatever. No, I didn't learn on my own. He wouldn't let me do that. His insurance wouldn't Good. let me do it. Good. But he was a hell of a good instructor. All right. I think uh, we've gone long enough for tonight. Uh Uh-oh. Somebody's calling my name. And they didn't hit their ears. This is uh, your, uh, the godfather of this. Richard. The godfather of this uh, marriage. Yes. Oh, hi, Richard. Hello. (laughs) You can thank my presence on tonight's call. You can thank the uh, Portland 7 getting acquitted on Thursday. And I had to call Monty and let him know about it. This, of course, was the uh, Wildlife Refuge Bundy gang uh, group. Anyway, so he said, hey, I'm doing a, doing a series of talk show calls. I said, oh, really? Who's that? Who are you doing? Oh, some guy's got this site called You Have the Right. I said, oh, yeah. Well, uh, who do you think introduced you to? <laughs> yeah, I, I had totally spaced it until he mentioned that. Yeah. Anyway, I just uh, have uh, half a dozen of little comments from the peanut gallery uh, based on the uh, conversations I've been listening with, uh, I guess it's Genevieve and then the gentleman who just called in from Georgia. Your, your modesty does not become you. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, wait till you hear my comments. <laughs> first one is, uh, and you'll you'll get it right off the bat. The quality of this from the first one. These are no particular order, uh, except you were talking about um, the the barber not opening a club med, and I would just say that that probably would lead to club fed, you know, except he's operating under state law, not federal. But uh, uh, I, I want to also put in a, a big, big. Uh, Kudo for Rudolph Flesh. I've been a hero. I mean, uh, he's my hero. He's been a hero of mine for many years. And based on your saying, uh, what you did about the three books, I got curious because I could re- immediately remember another title. So I looked up online. He's got like 12, you know, uh, really? Art of Readable Writing. Yeah, Art of the one that I knew that you didn't mention is The Art of Clear Thinking. And I love oh, really? that one. Yeah. Just if you okay. just Google his, Google his name, which is what all I just did, uh, and it's spelled R-U-D-O-L-F, not that Google cares, but he's Austrian, um, and that will just bring him right up. At least it did on my screen. I've got nine of them, and then you have an arrow to the right and fix you more. But, yeah, he's uh, fantastic, really, really helpful. Okay, so that's that. And then um, what does that say? Oh, private groups, talking about a private club, again, like... Uh, like the barber, 
Um, it takes me back to my uh, days in Southern Cal when there was, and may still be, in the Santa Monica, Venice region, a, uh, a group of people who, who were being harassed about uh, eating raw food, in particular raw milk. And so they formed a group just exactly like that. And they said, we want to, uh, we want to invite botulism, all these terrible things into our bodies. We want to strengthen our bodies. We want to fight them off. Uh, and, and we have gone together to buy food on this basis with this, this specific intention. So go away. I don't, I don't know their contract actually said go away. But it worked for them for quite a while. Eventually, the, the uh, authorities did come down on uh, this wonderful guy who's probably the genius behind the whole thing, James Stewart, actually, is his name, appropriate enough. Um, and he did some time. He may still be in, for all I know, but uh, he was, you know, they made, a, made an example of him. He would drive up to some of the farms, uh, you know, an hour or so outside of L.A. and pick up the raw milk and bring it back. But, uh, it can be done. Obviously, it's like anything else. If it gets too big, too loud, too uh, annoying, you'll probably find a way to hammer illegal or not. Yeah, but that uh, still goes goes back to what I've been recently recommending strongly, is you, you go come right back on them and say, "Where's your Where is the enabling yes. authority, which empowers that's, you?" Yep. I mean, that's, that's that slams the door on all of that. Right. Uh, next, in the in the uh, Rudolph Flesh uh, language department, <clears throat> as it bridges over into law, uh, wonderful essay, not a whole book, but George Orwell, our hero of 1984 and Animal Farm, etc., wrote an essay called The Politics of Language, which I highly recommend about how, well, actually, I looked it up here. Hang on a second. No, I didn't. I got out there. I started looking up Baton Holding for that lady. Um, but anyway, it talks about how the wording was. I forget now. But um, on, uh, on Orwell saying that, uh, you know, the politicization of language is done very definitely, you know, with uh, the intent of control and altering uh, people's minds so they don't yeah. know what they're agreeing to, etc. Okay, um, you said something about, oh, yeah, you, your approach in court and otherwise is to be friendly, but to let them know that if they become an enemy, you don't want me for your enemy, right? <laughs> Just a little comment reminds me of the wonderful... Um, Oh, I've lost the name. Um, think of it in a second. But uh, a songwriter who uh, wrote, among others, many others, top songs. Uh, he called, wrote one called The Story of Isaac. <clears throat> and um, and uh, he says near the, song, near the end of the song, When all has come to dust, I will, kill, <clears throat> I will kill you if I must. I will love you if I can. And I think that, oh, Gordon. No, that's not right. I'm not getting his name. Anyway, Story of Isaac, great song. Um, and then also as far as private contracts to do things like um, whoever it was was saying, oh, uh, Tad was finding it on the um, in the chat room, the man who says, I buy my equipment, I buy my load, and I go to the other end and I sell it. Reminds me of the guy, and he was in the same Richard McDonald uh, law study group that I started on not too many years ago. I don't want to tell you how many. Uh, not as long as you, Monty, I know. But um, 
This gentleman. Now you're really making me feel old. Yeah. This gentleman. Uh, no, no, I didn't say you're older. Just you've been studying longer. Oh, okay. My, my hat's off to you in that. Yeah. Anyway, this is back in the mid '90s, and this gentleman uh, down in Southern California wished to sell ozone generators, which at that time and probably still is illegal to do in California. He wanted to sell the machines for. Uh, $1,500. And, of course, he, he's not legally allowed to do that. So he got the right idea of writing a book about ozone generators. He would sell the book to his customer for $1,500 and give them the ozone generator. That's another way of doing it. Another way of doing it. Um, something you said in there... Um, I think it was right hand in glove with the uh, be your friend or be your worst enemy or whatever. Simply and about being very naive, seeming, uh, or just straightforward, not necessarily naive, just transparent in court. Reminds me of that biblical phrase about being as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There you go. That may be the end of my possibly short little list. You'll be the judge of of short little (laughs) list. Depending on how much you enjoyed it. All right, I enjoyed it greatly. I appreciate the call. And uh, y'all have a wonderful weekend. What's left of it? And a great next week. All right, Richard. Thank you very much, sir. My pleasure. Glad to have uh, been able to facilitate this this, uh, union between the two of you. It sounds like you're doing a lot of good. Yeah, thanks for your input. All right, you're welcome. All right, Marnie, we're going to wrap it up for the evening. Okay. Um, so everybody, uh, thank you very much for joining. Please share this with your friends. Let's get more people on here and and uh, get everybody up to speed. So we'll see everybody again next week. Thank you. Good night. All right. Good night. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.